Greetings, salutations, and welcome to the China Guy podcast. I am your host, Sean Lavellet, the China Guy, and this is our second episode, From Mao to Now, Part 2. If you have just joined us, in the last episode we examined the historical roots of China's modern economic growth, which centered on the conflict between two leading politicians named Hua Guofeng and Deng Xiaoping. When we left off, Hua Guofeng, the heir to Mao Zedong, had just ascended to power, and his first act as the paramount leader was to arrest four prominent Chinese politicians, known as the Gang of Four. This was a group of four of the top radicals in the CCP, or the Chinese Communist Party, who were a guiding force behind the Cultural Revolution. Their names were Wang Hongwen, Zhuang Chunqiao, Yao Wenyuan, and Mao's wife, Zhang Qing. The members of this group were likely the most powerful rivals to Hua Guofeng's power, which could account for their arrest. The term Gang of Four is actually a term coined by Mao to describe party factionalism. His comment was likely directed at the cliquishness of the party in general, and the Gang of Four were a convenient representation of that attitude. While the term was likely an offhand comment from the chairman, the post-Mao leadership saw his words as a way to discredit the members of this dangerous Gang of Four. While arrested in 1976, the gang did not face trial until 1980 and 1981. Yet this intriguing story serves as a representation of the factionalism of Chinese politics in this period. At a series of show trials, the Gang of Four were accused of conspiracy to seize power and incite armed revolt, particularly within a militia group in Shanghai, which was long known as a hotbed of revolutionary fervor. They were also accused of persecuting to death 34,800 people during the Cultural Revolution, and framed and persecuted 729,511 more. These four individuals represented the most radical wing of the party and were pushing for an extension of the Cultural Revolution throughout the 1970s. After their arrest, they were subjected to years of accusations, scapegoating, and imprisonment. After their trials, two of them were sentenced to death, and one was given a lifelong prison sentence. The greatest accusers in the Cultural Revolution eventually underwent the same treatment to which they subjected millions of others. The irony of their situation aside, it is unclear how much evidence exists supporting the arrest of the Gang of Four. That which does exist is flimsy, and recent documents have arisen claiming Hua Guofeng's allies meticulously planned the arrest in advance, suggesting their motivations were political rather than judicial. Discussions about the Gang of Four in mainland China are still tightly controlled and subject to strict censorship. While the legal validity of the arrest is questionable, the Gang of Four and their situation have a lot they can show us about Chinese politics and the mood of the CCP at the time. Divisions within the party marked the transitional period of the 1970s. Two main political philosophies vied for control, and all the top leaders were forced to take a position. One side supported the legacy of Mao and sought to continue his policies after his death. This group coalesced around Hua Guofeng, the appointed heir to Mao and a staunch supporter of his plans. The other philosophy demanded a change from the Maoist era, and most centrally a gradual opening of China to foreign investment, capital, and perhaps even market-based reforms. These beliefs were encapsulated in Deng Xiaoping, the exiled opposition to Hua Guofeng, and Zhou Enlai, the recently deceased premier who was a proponent of Deng's market reforms. Just before the death of Mao, Deng Xiaoping fled a smear campaign in Beijing, seeking refuge to the southern city of Guangzhou. 
Yet after Mao's funeral and Hua's rise to power, Deng moved to reintroduce himself into Chinese politics once again. Using his powerful connection in both the army and the party, Deng was reappointed as the vice premier of both the Politburo and the Military Affairs Commission. Chinese politics were deadlocked in 1977 and 1976, as both Deng and Hua vied for control of the party, government, and the army. Given the nature of Chinese politics, one would eventually have to win. In the Chinese Communist Party, there's always a winner. And a loser. Each man used power in different ways, and both were influenced by the legacy of Mao and the Cultural Revolution. Hua held a more prestigious political positions, allowing him a strong sway in the government and the party. Yet Deng, not to be outdone, held the more powerful connections in the party, army, and even intellectual circles. While this may not seem as important to a Western audience, it highlights the importance of the Chinese concept of guanxi, or relationships. Guanxi means, basically, that all people are bound in a web of complex social relationships, and that each person has a duty to that relationship. If a person takes you out to a fancy dinner and pays, you have a responsibility to them later down the road. If a business client gives you a gift or does you a favor, you are responsible for paying them a favor in return. Dating back to ancient Confucian philosophy, guanxi is an important cultural aspect of China even today. Try giving a gift to your Chinese friends sometime. I promise you they will promptly return the favor. This concept is deeper than simply paying somebody a favor, however. It is ingrained in the Chinese concept of friendship. I would like to point out that there is nothing underhanded about guanxi. It is a form of social protocol, not social manipulation. Similar to how Americans might view gift-giving as a social nicety or requirement during holidays. However, there are some that argue it could account for the vast corruption scandals at the top of recent Chinese politics that current Chinese president Xi Jinping is trying to stamp out. But that is a topic for another day. Deng Xiaoping, as a more established figure in the CCP at the time, held a larger and stronger web of guanxi than Hua Guofeng, which gave him the political clout to go toe-to-toe with the heir of Mao Zedong. This legacy of Mao colored the images of both men. Hua used his relationship with Mao to legitimize himself as the best person to lead China into the future. In his mind, he was handpicked by Mao, so there could be no question about his legitimacy. Many agreed with him, yet the connection to Mao was a double-edged sword. While the great chairman was still above reproach, many Chinese, even in the party, began to question his leadership and decision-making. While no one could outright say that Mao was bad for China, he was no longer sacrosanct. Famously, Mao was described by the official party line as being correct in his policies 70% of the time while being wrong 30% of the time. Most of his poor decisions were said to come at the end of his life. Poor Mao, getting a C- on policymaking. Deng Xiaoping was not burdened by this legacy, as he was not as strongly connected to Mao. Deng also used Mao's philosophy of seek truth from facts to set himself up as a pragmatist, not beholden to ineffective decisions. Deng also escaped association with the Cultural Revolution, as he spent most of those years as a political pariah for his economic reform ideas. Yet that time spent politically powerless now paid off, as his reputation as a staunch reformer and opponent of the Cultural Revolution served him well. Using this reformer identity and his powerful connections in Chinese society, Deng set about grooming two prominent CCP members as his protégés. The first, Hu Yaobing, was known as a defender of students and young people in the party, 
and was a popular figure among many party members. The other apprentice to Deng was Zhao Ziyang, a longtime economic ally who had revitalized rice production in Sichuan, China's most populous province at the time, and possibly home to the most delicious food in China. Zhao appealed to the reformer in Deng and served as a representation of the success of Deng's policies. These two men were critical in taking down Hua Guofeng and his Maoist philosophy. All this plotting paid off, and in 1980, Zhao Ziyang, the rice reformer, replaced Hua as premier of the Politburo, the highest governmental office in China. Then, in 1981, student populist Hu Yaobing replaced Hua as the chairman of the Central Committee, the highest office in the party. By now, Hua's power was over. Deng Xiaoping had already become the chairman of the Military Affairs Commission, the highest office in the military that had always eluded Hua. Yet Deng was kind to the heir of Mao. He allowed Hua to remain as an ordinary member of the Central Committee. How gracious. Deng was now the top dog in China. No one remained to challenge his authority. Having consolidated his power, the new paramount leader set about the tremendous task of revitalizing the Chinese economy and getting it on even footing with the developed nations of the world. To do this, he had to shift the political focus in the country away from class struggle and on to modernization. This led him to possibly the greatest slogan in Chinese communist history, to get rich is glorious. If the whole country was to get gloriously rich, the countryside would have to be revitalized. So Deng's reforms started in the agricultural sector. In the 1980s, the government dismantled the collective farms set up by Mao, while also encouraging private enterprise. Prices for farm machinery, fertilizers, and insecticides were cut by 10-15%. to 15%. Food prices in urban areas were kept artificially low so that these changes would not cause spikes in prices for urban dwellers. Deng was aware of and did not want to return to the starvation of the previous years. Another famous policy that had far-reaching effects, even up to today, were the special economic zones set up by Deng, who initially proposed the idea at the Conference of the Central Committee in 1979. They were first dubbed Special Zones for Export, but within a year were renamed Special Economic Zones. The idea behind these zones is simple. Each one is supposed to be a free market economic area connected to an already developed area near China, which would stimulate growth in the SEZ, or Special Economic Zone. The Chinese government invested heavily in these areas, particularly in infrastructure. Deng hoped these zones would drive growth into further areas of China, paving the way for an expansion of the economy. The four original zones were Zhuhai, Shenzhen, Shantou, and Xiamen. Zhuhai was connected to the former Portuguese trading port of Macau, now world-renowned for its casinos. Shantou and Xiamen were connected to Taiwan, a mostly Chinese-populated island with an economy far more vibrant than their communist neighbors at that time. Shenzhen was connected to the gleaming British colonial metropolis of Hong Kong. There were many more SEZs set up later, but these four were the first. Shenzhen has been the most successful, as it is now the leading as it is now one of the leading economic cities in China, challenging Shanghai, Hong Kong, and Beijing. These SEZs perfectly represent the opening of China to foreign investment for which Deng had always hoped for. Deng Xiaoping was, by no means, a perfect and benevolent leader. 
one only needs look at the Tiananmen Square protests, which will be covered in a later episode, to see a challenge to that assumption. Yet his impact on the modern Chinese economy is undeniable, as he changed the course of political ideology in the Chinese Communist Party, breaking from Mao, moving China into more interaction with the outside world, and modernizing its economy. While millions of Chinese remain in grueling poverty, and the nation is racked by other issues, both political and economic, it is undeniable that an entire nation heeded Deng's words when he extolled them to get rich is glorious. Next time on The China Guy. Having finished our discussion of Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, we are going to move further back in time, going into some deeper dynastic history and uncovering how other historical leaders have impacted modern China and the world. And you can follow us on Twitter at the China Guy Podcast for weekly updates, historical facts, and to follow my obsession with Chinese cuisine. Thank you for listening, and I hope you join us on our next and exciting installment of The China Guy. Zaijian.